so I hear it's pretty hard to have a baby. <laughs> Melanie has had four of them. But I, from the side, have seen labor pains. I have seen pains that follow four C-sections. I have some of them on video if anybody wants to watch them. And so as I watch from the sidelines, it seems very clear that it is hard and that it is very painful. But you know what? In relation to having babies, I have not yet met a Christian couple who have chose not to try and have babies because of labor pains. I've talked to you guys about them, these pains. I have not, had, I have not heard anyone give real pause to having children for fear of labor pains, right? Just think about it yourselves. As you guys are, as some of you married couples are thinking about having children, women in particular, like how much do, do the labor pains actually give you pause at the end of the day? It's not that labor pains are not real. Remember, I've seen them. If you are anything like Melanie, no real pause is given because of the joy that is expected. Growing your family, hearing the baby cry for the very first time, and Jared and Kristen are here today, and they're probably thinking about this very new thing. The thought of cradling your very own baby for the very first time. The thought of raising and then seeing that child grow up and we pray that they would follow Jesus. The hope of seeing that child then go to have, grow to have their uh, children of their own. All of that far outweighs the 24 to 48 hours of labor, no matter how painful it is. It's a matter of fact. Labor pains are par for the pregnancy course, aren't they? But once again, the pain experience is not even worth comparing to the future joy. This is exactly what our passage today addresses. Of course, it doesn't speak about pains and joys of real childbirth, but about the pains and then the joys of the Christian life. Did you know that no matter what you are suffering today, as many of us might be suffering, no matter what you are suffering today, God promises you, Christian, real hope, real joy to come. That makes anything that you are suffering right now inconsequential, trivial, minor. And here's the main point if you're taking notes. The hope that overwhelms suffering is the hope of future glory. Main point today. The hope that overwhelms all suffering is the hope of future glory. I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 28. If you're using one of the black Bibles there in front of you, it's found on page 944. 944. And as you turn there, let me just say that last week we finished Oscar's series of the book of Philippians. And then this week we return to the book of Romans as we've been walking through there. And obviously we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8. I was going to continue on that course, but, uh, you know, the next two weeks we have guest preachers. We're going to pick, pick up Romans after that. Uh, so here we're going to dip back into Romans 8 where we look at the blessings of salvation. 
the blessings of salvation. But let me be clear, as we talk about this hope of future glory stuff, Paul assumes that we already know what's come before in Romans chapters 1 to 7. He assumes, right, that we are reading his letter, that we're studying his letter, the word of God, as he writes it, inspired by the word of God. He assumes that we already are on the same page. We have already talked about how one can be saved. Romans 8, actually 5 to 8, look at the blessings of salvation. So, we, just so that we be on the same page, well, how exactly does one get saved? This is through the gospel. This is why Paul writes this letter to the Roman Christians there in the middle of the 50s A.D. He says, look, you can get relationship with God, the ultimate blessing. You can be restored to God, reconciled to God, just before a righteous God, only through Jesus Christ. Why is that? How is that? That the only way that we can be righteous before God is through His very own Son was because we have messed up. We had rebelled against our one true and living God and earned judgment for ourselves. And the Bible calls this sin and rebellion. We earn for ourselves just judgment. God created us to be in a relationship with Him. But we basically tell Him to go buzz off. We don't care what He wants of our lives. Instead, we want to do what we want to do. And so we rebel. And we earn for ourselves, once again, just judgment. So the question is, though, how do I be right with God? How do I be in salvation? How do I get salvation? How do I get forgiveness of sins and right standing with God? Well, that's, friends, where we turn to Jesus Christ, who, whom God sent. The Son took on flesh. He lived a perfect life that we should have. The righteous requirements of the law were fulfilled in Him when we couldn't. Where we should have died for sin, Christ already died. He bore the wrath of all who would ever repent of their sins and believe. And if you turn from your sins right now and believe on him, you will be saved. You will have a right relationship with God. You can be reconciled with him, your maker. And so you have forgiveness of sins, a blessing. You have right standing with God, a blessing. You have peace with God. You have adoption into his family. And you have a hope that when Christ comes, he will gather his people together and bring you, Christian, into future glory. All that is promised if you would turn from your sins and believe on Jesus Christ. There's nothing else to be paid. Three days later, he gets up from the grave showing all that payment was made. You don't have to die for your sins if you turn and believe on him. So with that already spoken of, Hopefully here we're already on the same page. Now we move once again to the blessings of salvation. And for for today, we look at the blessing of future glory. The blessing of future glory. Now before we get into our our passage today, uh, it's it's good to recap what we've been looking at in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17, the section immediately before here. He was saying that even though Christians are freed from the power of sin, freed from slavery to sin, death and judgment because of sin, He says we still need to fight sin, and we do so in the Spirit. This is the story of the Christian life. We are to be killing sin, as John Owen put it, or sin will be killing you. And of course, this fight is not always easy. Some of you guys know this. All of us know this if you're a Christian. So how encouraging it is to know that our Father looks after us and that He is with us through His indwelling Spirit. And in His Spirit, we cry out independence on Him in our struggle, Abba, Father, which means dear Father. 
After all, those who have turned to Christ by faith, God takes us as his people and we take him as our God. We are heirs of God, heirs with Christ. And all Christians are sons of God in the Son of God. But if you look there in verse 17, look there in 817. Paul ends our previous section there with some hard-hitting words there. He says, look, we are indeed fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. It's very fitting that Paul would speak about suffering with Christ. The Roman Christians had indeed suffered with Christ and for Christ. We know that uh, we think that uh, scholars think that that Paul was writing this letter here towards the end of the mid 50s AD. But here's what happened. See, many Jewish Christians that he was writing to had gotten kicked out of Rome, exiled out of Rome in the late 40s AD on account of their Christian faith. And if you want an example later on, you can turn to Acts chapter 18. You go ahead and write that down. Uh, A couple by the names of Priscilla and Aquila were in fact deported from Rome, Acts says. They were deported out of Rome, and they go on to make a new life in the city of Corinth, 750 miles away. And keep in mind, right, they're not going there by airplane. They're loading up donkeys, and they're traveling there. It's like getting kicked out of Hacienda Heights, and then you guys having to go and make a new home in Wyoming, exiled out of your city. That's the Roman Christian suffering there. Paul, too, had known great suffering. We can think about 2 Corinthians, which was written a couple years before Romans, most scholars think. And you know what he says that he already went through by that time? Imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. He says there are five whippings. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. Night and day I was adrift at sea. We could just go on and on. But this suffering with Christ and for Christ is exactly what Christ would be the normal, typical experience of those who would follow him. Jesus said in John 15, 20, if they persecute me, they will persecute you also. But Paul in Romans 8 reminds readers that though Christians will suffer with Christ, we have hope of being glorified with Christ. This is the hope that we look at today. So if you have suffered, once again, If you have suffered, if you are suffering, if you are going to suffer, I pray that the Spirit of Christ helps us sink our teeth into God's promise of future salvation, the consummation of all of His promises to His people. So with that background, let's go ahead and read Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. Paul says there, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it 
with patience. Our passage there in verse 18 begins with this somewhat, at least some people might think, this crazy claim. This near absurd claim to some people who are new to this. And this is point one, you have the claim. He claims that there is a hope that overwhelms all earthly suffering. Once again, a hope that renders earthly suffering inconsequential, trivial, minor. And it is the Christian's hope of future glory. Look there in verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time, this present age, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You, you get why he's saying that, right? He just said that we had to suffer in order to be glorified with him, suffering with him, glorification with him. And so we think, oh man, this really stinks because suffering is hard. As many of you guys know personally, suffering is very difficult. So he helps us understand this suffering and he comes in saying this, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You know, sadly, depending on when someone would have told me that last year, I don't think I would have heard them. Think about your own suffering, even right now. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Or do you think this is the proclamations of a crazy man? In my suffering, that wrenched me physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. It oftentimes felt like all that I could do was consider how overwhelming my suffering was. That's the considering that was going on there. When I went through that arthritis pain, sometimes all I felt like I could do was stay alive. And I am not joking one moment about that. That's all that I could do. From what people tell me, the pain of gout is very similar to the pain of having a baby, okay? So women don't think like, oh, that's not, that can't be possible. That's what people tell me, okay? <clears throat> but imagine having five to six babies in five to six weeks. And then maybe having another break. And then again, having five to six babies in five to six weeks. I don't know how I would have heard them. The sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to everything that is to come. And maybe you are like me, and we don't hear because we are really good at considering our own suffering in the moment, and frankly, not so good at considering all that is to come. And right there, that's key, because what Paul invites us all to consider is all that is to come. That's the thing that provides hope. That's the thing that strengthens endurance. And the more that we consider all that is to come, the more stronger our hope gets, right? It's very obvious. And the thing under consideration is the Christian's hope of future glory in Jesus Christ. It is this future glory that is assessed over and against the sufferings of this present age, this age that's marked by death, this age that's marked by the fall, this age that's marked by sin, right? You see that there. The future glory is the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's hard to translate this word. Tom Schreiner says, commentator says, he says it's more like the glory that will grasp us, the glory that's going to be worked in us. Now, while Paul considers or concludes that suffering of this present age is not worth comparing 
right? This is a conclusion. There, there has been some sort of assessment, if you want to call it that, some sort of consideration initially. And then he comes to this conclusion here and he states this. But I mean, imagine Paul considering, just you guys too, step in his shoes here. Imagine Paul taking an inventory on this side of the ledger sheet, all the sufferings of this present age that you guys are going through. Here, even in Romans chapter 8, we see that the sufferings include battling against sin. So some of you guys, you guys might be discouraged about your own sin as you battle that. He talks about the sufferings of this world. Some of you guys, your guys' bodies are breaking down. You see entropy working its way on your very own bodies, whether they be shoulder surgeries or gout, or maybe, frankly, your mind is changing. He goes on to talk about the persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. All of these things, he's considering them, but... Then he considers the inventory of all the blessings that are to come in Jesus Christ in final salvation. That's the hope of future glory that just gets longer and longer and longer and longer. And then concludes that the sufferings of this present age, everything that he's already uh, logged, are inconsequential. They're neither here nor there. They are negligible. Why is that? Again, it's the obvious answer. Because it is the glory of to be revealed to us. Verse 18. Look there in verse 19. It is the revealing of the sons of God. That's like our true membership in God's family. Finally, we see in all of its glory. Verse 23, you look there. It's our adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. We could go on. 2 Timothy 4 speaks about the day of the Lord. That day when the Lord will award to all who love Him the crown of righteousness. He's talking about the day that Christ returns. He's talking about the Christian's glorification. The Christian's glorification. He's already mentioned this glorification in Romans chapter 5, verse 2. He says there that we rejoice in it, this hope of God's glory. And just as Paul encourages Christians there in Romans chapter 5 to uh, confidence, security, so he returns to all of that in Romans chapter 8. Confidence in future glory. So remember, this is exactly where Paul's going. He's going towards this glory. You suffer with him, you're glorified with him. So he speaks about what is this glorification? You look there in, in um, 8, 29 to 30, for example, right? For those whom he knew, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That, right? that's, that's glorification language in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's like it's so certain, this hope of future glory is so certain that he speaks about it in past tense. So what exactly is this glorification? You want to write this down? I know some of you guys, uh, um, you're, you're, you're eager to learn, which is awesome. So you definitely want to write stuff down. We've already learned about justification where God declares us righteous before Him. He declares us righteous. We've already learned about sanctification. That is, that God is growing us in holiness. And here we learn about glorification, when Christ returns to gather His people to Himself, raising them from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that on that day, the mortal will put on immortality, just like Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have a parallel verse here of 8, 18. This is what it says. It says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
Christ's people in glorification. Christ's people are brought into Christ's glory through their resurrection from the dead, right? So just remember, Jesus is our trailblazer. All that he wins, he wins for us, for those who are united to him. You can think about, think about him as a trailblazer, carrying his machete, hacking away sin and freedom and a path to glory. And he does that through his death and then also his resurrection from the dead, where he puts on an immortal body. Remember Romans chapter 6, just as Christ died to sin, so those who are united to him die to sin. And just as he was raised from the dead to new life, so those who are united to him believe on him by faith, are raised from the dead to new life spiritually, but also physically. Just as he was raised in a glorified body, so those who believe on him will be raised in an immortal body like Christ's. Now, in light of this glorification stuff, and along, that, along with that is heaven. There is a lot of um, weird and, frankly, in my opinion, some irreverent teaching about what will happen when God's people will be glorified, when God's people will be in heaven. There's one song that I heard and, in fact, sang in a church song, or sorry, sang in a church. Uh, this one song speaks of heaven as, quote, a big, big house with a big, big yard where you can play football. I fear songs like that cater to our individualistic mentality, our consumerism, where we imagine glorification and heaven, glory being our own personal comfort, to do whatever it is that I want to do. But you know what Scripture says it will be like when the present age marked by death is brought to an end and the future age is brought to bear? That future age is when our sovereign God and King makes His rule and reign known to the very ends of the earth where He judges the wicked and where He brings final and full salvation and deliverance to His beloved people once and for all. And as we read in the book of Isaiah, which is also we see fulfilled in Revelation, God will be with His people and He will dwell with them face to face. You see there, that's relationship there. That's God's people living underneath God's rule and loving Him. Thus, the hope is ultimately hope in the glory of God being made known and in fact shared with His children. So friends, when you think about glorification, when you think about new heavens and new earth, when you think about heaven, think sons of God under the good, loving rule of the Son of God. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, the mortal will put on immortality. So we can also think the sons of God being like the Son of God. Is this your hope, Christian? In suffering. Your bodies are breaking down. You're burying your loved ones. Your jobs aren't working out like they're supposed to. Your relationships are hanging on by a thread. You know how this would be? Or do you know how you know this would be your hope? Just ask yourself, what do you consider in your suffering? What do you consider in your suffering? Is your hope simply to not be in the earthly situation that you are in? In other words, so you're listing out on the comparison sheet all of your earthly sufferings and your hope of glory is in different earthly circumstances. 
Does your hope ever go beyond five years? Ten years? Does your hope ever go beyond your lifetime? Or is your hope only limited to a change in circumstance in this lifetime? Friends, if you're like me, you know that oftentimes we don't see so clearly and our hope is so finite. It's so limited. You know, we get discouraged for all sorts of reasons and look to a simplistic solution bound to this present age. But of course we know therein lies the problem, right? We have no lasting hope in this present age marked by sin and death. In our passage, God tells us to play the long game, doesn't he? He invites us to look forward, not five years, ten years. He look, invites us to look beyond our lifetimes. Verse 18, right? It gets us on our tiptoes, helping us look forward beyond this present age to the age that is to come, to the age where Christ's reign is established to the ends of his universe, where we will dwell with him face to face. It's in Paul's claim that our sufferings here in this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us in the age to come. That's point number one, the claim. Point number one, the claim there. There is, friends, a hope that overwhelms all suffering here in this present age. And that's the hope of future glory. Point number two here, really the rest of the passage here, Paul encourages us to fix our hearts on the hope of future glory. That's what he does here. He encourages us to fix our hearts on the hope of future glory. Right, so in the midst of suffering... It's often hard, oftentimes so, so hard to see clearly. It's hard to see Christ in His glory. It's hard to see our future glorification because we've lost sight of the content of hope. We've lost sight of the content of hope. We don't know how to consider the hope because we don't know its content. And in in those moments, isn't it so incredibly helpful to look at things from a different perspective? Right, just We know this in sanctification. We know this in battling our own sin as we are trying to uh, throw off everything that hinders us. And so we need someone to come alongside us and say, Look, Jeremy, don't you see what God is doing in your life? You see, God is working in you. And so we see things from a different perspective. Well, friends, that's exactly what's going to happen here. Paul, in, verses, in verse 19 following, goes absolutely global here. It's like he sets us to the side. He says, Hold on, okay, you suffering Christians... Let me set you to the side so I can go panoramic here, okay? Look at verse 19. He says, and he knows, right? Look, suffer with Christ. You'll be glorified with Christ. Sufferings of this age are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come, though it's going to be revealed to us. He says, for creation, for creation waits with eager longing. For what? Not first its own glory, though it certainly will get its own glory, but for the glory of the people of God for the revelation, for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation waits for the redemption, the adoption, the revealing of the very sons of God. What an encouragement. You see the way it's supposed to work here. We get discouraged. When we are discouraged, it is so spirit-lifting, isn't it? so spirit-lifting to hear other people preach God's truth about us to us. That's what's going on here. Paul sits us again on the sideline for one moment to see all that creation sees and knows and longs for so that we might do the same. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In this poetic language here, God's creation takes on the characteristics of people, 
right? Just the way you write certain things. And creation is said to be doing, to be praising, to be hoping. And it's written in such a way where we as God's people might do praise and hope as well. We're taught by creation, God's creation. God's creation is going to do what it's designed for, and we too should long for what we have been designed for. Think about this, right? We see this in other scriptures. Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. The arrival of the king, the arrival of his righteous rule, even the trees will clap their hands, it says. And then the most famous comes from the very mouth of Christ. He's riding on his donkey, going to his throne, that is the cross, to Jerusalem, his city. And his people are saying, people who fall flocking towards him, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then the Jewish teachers, how do they respond? They basically say, shut these people up, Jesus. They tell Jesus, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus responds saying, I tell you that even if these disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. The point is that when the king arrives, no one can stop his created universe from giving him the praise that he alone deserves. And so all of his created universe comes to do what they are designed for. And here in our Romans passage, God's creation longs for, hopes in its creator to make all things new, starting with us, unfolding his plan and salvation in us, which then signifies the renewal to come of creation itself. You just think about there, just for a moment right there, right? Sits us on the sideline, goes panoramic. And we know that the creation is longing for the redemption of the sons of God, for Jesus to come down on earth, and the sons of God to be gathered to himself. And we know too that the angels, even in the heavens, they're looking into God's plan. They don't know God's plan, but they're looking in, and they rejoice too when sinners are saved. And so even, the, not only does the creation long for, but the he- angels in heaven are looking down eagerly waiting God's fulfillment of his plan and salvation. So everybody, everything in the universe waits for our adoption, the revealing of the sons of God. We're supposed to be encouraged here. God's creation waits for God's final redemption of his people. And here, you know, if if, uh, some of you guys might have come across people saying that the gospel is this idea of earthly renewal, well, you see here, there's a rebuke to that kind of thought. What does creation itself long for? It's not its own renewal, actually. It's first. The emphasis is on the revelation of the sons of God. That's redemption language, final salvation language. This is the hope in which we were saved, the hope that far outweighs our earthly sufferings in this present age. So, okay, application question. If creation thinks stuff of the world, you know, of course, this is personified. There's, uh, Paul writes of them taking on personal characteristics, right? If creation itself, the stuff of the world, hopes in something else, why would you want to hope in creation? Why would you want to hope in creation if creation itself isn't where it's at? As if our joy depended on our physical health. Or obtaining a nice apartment that's going to break down anyway. anyway, Or obtaining a house to live in. Or having perfect earthly relationships. Or having a perfect mind. Everything is breaking down, friends. And in verse 20 to 22, we have an explanation why. Right here, we almost have the creation testifying. Don't believe in me. Don't hope in me. Hope in God. Look at 20 to 22. I'll go ahead and read that. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly 
but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Just stop and look at all of those descriptions about the world that we are so tempted to place our hope in. The money, health, whatever you have there. Verse 20, futility. Verse 21, bondage to corruption and decay, which our bodies know. Verse 22 there, you have the groaning in the very pains of childbirth. So you see why creation was like this? In verse 21, you have because of him who subjected it. And this, of course, recalls Genesis chapter 3, where God moved to judge sin. There in Genesis chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, God curses the earth on account of man's sin. God created, once again, man to be in perfect relationship with him. Man's original purpose. Your original purpose was to display God's glory to the world as God's vice regents to the ends of the earth. And then earth's original purpose was to provide an environment for man to do what man is called to do. But in the sin of Adam, man threw off God's original purpose given to him. Instead of displaying God's glory with delight, they delighted in serving themselves. They delighted to live for their own glory, and they walked in darkness, rejecting God's truth, suppressing God's truth, trading in God's glory. And so God judges man, not only bringing the curse of death upon man, but also subjects the world to the same. As an ever-present reminder of God's judgment against man, the world becomes a mirror image of the darkened heart of man. As an ever-present reminder of God's judgment against man, the world becomes a mirror image of the darkened heart of man. Chaos and untamed rebellion in our hearts. Chaos and untamed rebellion in the world. Church, we have to ingrain these truths in our minds and in our hearts. All that we see thinking more specifically here about the natural devastations. All that we see about the stuff of the world as we broaden the categories, all the stuff in the world in general, as hard as they are to face, whether they be fires or earthquakes or hurricanes or tsunamis. And then getting more specifically, our breaking down bodies, our relationships, things like this. They are evidence of God's holy opposition to sin and evil and rebellion and the unrighteousness of man. We have to know that in our hearts. The world is a mirror image of what's going on in our hearts. Thus, we ought never place our hopes in the world, right? Because they are to point us to our need for being reconciled to God. And so you have uh, the passage that Steve preached from in Luke chapter 13. A natural disaster happens. A building falls down on people. And what does Jesus say? He says, we don't really know why exactly this happened. But here is a specific application for why this happened. It's because if you do not turn from your sins, you too will perish. You see that there? Earthly disaster, get right with God. Earthly darkness, a reflection of the darkness of man that we certainly need to take care of. God will take care of what goes on in the earth. We need to turn to God and repent of our sin. Now, friends, if you are exploring Christianity... We understand the longing, you know, as Christians, we understand the longing to live in a perfect world. 
So we have people giving themselves even right now to, to economic systems and government systems of trying to create a utopia. We got people writing books and books about this kinds of stuff, these kinds of stuff. We understand, right, the desire to live in a perfect location, perfect circumstances in the perfect world. And friends, non-Christian, that is an excellent instinct. That is a wonderful instinct that you long for something else. You know why it's excellent? It because, it's because it attests to the fact that the world is not as it should be. In fact, it's never as it should be. Even you think about the most wonderful place here to live in on the whole entire planet is California. Well, you know what the scientists are saying? They're saying that the whole of Cal- west side of California is going to plunge into the ocean next time the, the big earthquakes are happening. The, the rim of fire in the Pacific Ocean. Like, so basically, you're looking at all the paradise areas just being sunken into the sea, swallowed up. It's not the most perfect place to live in. We do. We should long for something else. And this longing attests to the fact that the world is not as it should be. It is fallen. It has been subjected on purpose to futility by God. So as the world is a mirror image of our dark and corrupted hearts, God wants us to see the futility and know that we have no hope apart from God. We need to be reconciled to Him as our Creator, as our Savior, the one who can get us right with Him. Right, that's to the non-Christian. Then to the Christian, we see too that we are reminded that our only hope is God, even in the midst of suffering, as God's going to be renewing the world. He's the one who has authority, not only to subject it, but then also to renew it. This is his intention. Look there, he subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So just as the children of God are freed and made new in every way, so the world will be recreated by God. So the hope here is that God himself will one day make all things right, reversing the curse of sin on creation, restoring creation to its original purpose. Remember what that was? To provide an environment where the very sons of God can fulfill theirs. That is, display his glory to the ends of the earth, shouting his praises into eternity. There in the new heavens and the new earth, God's people in Christ are inheritors of the world, as it says there in Romans 4.13. So, if creation itself waits in eager anticipation, right? Okay, so we're looking at this panorama that Paul has shown us here at all creation. If creation waits in eager anticipation for our adoption, the question is, do you, Christian? You saw that creation does. Now we're looking at, do we? Do you, Christian, eagerly anticipate the adoption, redemption of your bodies? In our passage, this is where Paul is going, creation longs, we too are to long. But the question is, do we? The question is, do we? I mean, you know, of course we do. Paul says that we do there in verse 23, look there again, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly, adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So yeah, of course we do. But as Paul seeks to encourage you, Christian, as God is using this word to encourage you, He not only states that Christians do, but He exhorts us to. In stating that we do, He exhorts us to. Not only the creation, but we too eagerly await the same thing. Now again, we know that we don't always eagerly await, but Paul exhorts us to eagerly await. He reminds us of the hope that we are to cling to. Did you see how He encourages us, church? Some find this encouragement kind of puzzling. It's kind of weird. You know, he exhorts us to long for the glory that is to come by reminding
reminding us that we have God's Spirit. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit long for this stuff. You might be thinking like, okay, I don't really get it. I have the Spirit. How does that help me here long for what is to come? How does that help us consider our present sufferings incomparable, inconsequential, minor, trivial to the glory that is to come? Well, the answer is because receiving the Spirit testifies to the fact that you have already been saved and that you are being saved and that you will be saved. So in the giving of the Spirit to those who have faith in Christ, those who have repented of their sins and turned to Him, those who believed upon Him in faith, God has already set His love upon you. Past tense, He already has. So to believe in Christ is to possess the Spirit. To possess the Spirit is to have Christ dwelling in us who will never leave us nor forsake us. So in the Spirit, you Christian, you know, you have begun to experience all of the blessings of salvation that Christ has won for you. Already, you have. You have begun because you have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits that is the Spirit. That's why he's called the first fruits. He's the first fruits of final redemption. Elsewhere in Scripture, you think of Ephesians chapter 1, the Spirit is called the down payment of everything that is to come, the guarantee of everything that is to come. So just imagine this here, illustration. Imagine a good and perfect father, the best father, the perfect father you can imagine, who is also the wealthiest person that you can imagine. Imagine if he adopted you, an orphan, into his family where you know or are absolutely convinced of his desire to love you. Right? He's brought you into his family legally. And you also know that he desires to wield all of his resources for your good. Imagine if you approach the front door of your new house, which so happens to be a mansion, and he says, look, son, look, daughter, I want you to know that in my love, right, under my care, everything that I am is yours. He also says that everything that I own is yours. Everything that you can see is yours. My house is yours. My cars are yours. My food is yours, and I am yours. It reminds me of this time uh, when our family was invited to go visit uh, a royal family in Dubai. And uh, I remember distinctly when we pulled up to the palace, and it, it was a palace. It is a palace. It was one of the royal families. And the gates were opening... And then it seemed like we were just driving forever to get to where the guy lives, right? The palace. And then when we pulled, turned around this corner, of course, there are palm trees everywhere. Uh, when we turned around this corner, there's a mass, absolutely massive building. And then uh, we, we were friends with a veterinarian, right? He took care of, uh, the, I, think he was a, one, I think he was a prince, um, took care of all of his horses, right? They're Arabian horses. He was doing scientific experiments. Actually, he was like a leader in some of these scientific experiments now spread around the world, and he said, uh, oh, that one over there is his mother's. And this thing was just absolutely gigantic, and I wonder, it must have been, I don't even know, 20,000 20, square feet, 30,000 square feet, just ridiculous. 50,000 square feet, I don't even know. It was like multi, three stories, four stories. Um, the whole thing was like glass mirrored, and then on this other side, there was another building. That was his building. His mom lived over here, he lived over there. So just imagine pulling up to that type of house, right? You have that kind of father, endless resources, and he says, everything that I have is yours, you orphan. That's amazing. Access to everything that is my father's. And you think about, you know, the little kid who's running around and excited, but 
you know, here's the deal. If you see, if the stuff that you see is amazing, imagine the resources that you don't see. So if you have believed on Christ, Christian, you have received the Spirit of Christ and have been brought into genuine fellowship with God the Father where His love is lavished upon you by faith in Christ and in His Spirit. This is what happens. Romans 8, 9 says you belong to Christ, Christian. And in our belonging to Christ, Romans 5, 5 tells us that we now know the love of God through the Spirit. Where once we were slaves to sin under God's judgment and condemnation, well, friends, because of the Spirit, we now are free. And so Romans 8, 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Where we once followed sin and death, now by faith in Jesus Christ, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, Romans 7, 6 says. Where once we were underneath the power of sin and judgment for sin, we were setting our minds on the flesh which led to death. But now, through faith in Jesus Christ and receiving the indwelling Spirit, now, as Romans says, we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, which is life in peace, Romans 8, 6. Though life in this present age is oftentimes hard as we battle sin, as we experience difficulty, well, friends, by the Spirit, we can cling to God in dependence for help, calling, crying out to Him, Abba, Father, in Romans 8, 15. And even where we might be uncertain and insecure, according to Romans 8, 16, the Spirit Himself comforts us and mediates for us and testifies along with our spirit and to God that we are indeed claimed by God for eternity. And even as we live our lives in this present age where we will in fact all die, God promises us in Romans 8, 11, because of the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in me, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your own mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in us. Friends, all that is the foretaste. All that is the front door. And we have eternity to look forward to the feast that is to come where final salvation will be brought to bear to every single one of us who is a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Through His Spirit, we know the love of God for us and all of the blessings of salvation, and that is the foretaste. Imagine the feast of final deliverance. Imagine acquiring possession of our final inheritance that is God Himself, heirs of God, where God is ours and we are His people. We are heirs of Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus has won, He has won for us, and so we become inheritors of the world. Welcome to the eternal joy of our Savior. This is the Christian hope that overwhelms every single experience of suffering and every single aspect of suffering here in this present age. You look there in Romans 24 and 25. I'll go ahead and read there. Look at this hope. Long for this hope. For in this hope we were saved. Not that we're saved by this hope. This is the hope that comes along with salvation. It's the hope that we are placed into because of our faith in Jesus Christ, because of the indwelling Spirit of God, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Future glory in God is the eternal joy that is to come and the glory that all 
of our suffering and groaning, your suffering and your groaning, as you experience pains of labor that they point to. It's the hope that renders all suffering in this present age inconsequential, trivial, minor, just as the hope of having a child makes a parent say, sometimes, even some of you guys, right after you've had another child, let's have another one. This hope of glory is what gives us confidence to go through the labor pains. Isn't it? If you think about the labor pains, right, real labor pains, there's so many different parallels, right? You think about the labor pains, and even when you know that they're going to come at a certain period of time, you are looking forward to the signs of labor pains. You might not want to go through them, but actually you might want to go through them because it means that you're going to have your child. Even the labor pains become exciting to you in some very strange way as you await the final hope. Why isn't it with us? Why isn't it that way with us as Christians in our suffering in this present age? In light of the hope of joy, the arrival of joy, parents wait eagerly in anticipation, awaiting the arrival of the baby. So Christians have the hope of joy, of final salvation, the hope of future glory, of glorification. When we see Jesus face to face, we can wait eagerly and with patience, it says eagerly anticipating all that is to come. Friends, our passage invites us to live life in this present age, as difficult as it may be, in suffering, in light of the hope of joy in Jesus Christ. It is in this hope, once again, that we are saved. We're saved into it. It's a hope that comes along with our salvation. So, friends, do you wait eagerly for the hope of glory? Do you actually know its content? So that when suffering comes and you are so tempted to just sit there and dwell on the catalog of all the different ways that you suffer and every single different aspect of suffering that's weighing you down and crippling you, where you're barely holding on. Do you even know the content of hope here? Where Paul says, as he looks over here, the hope of future glory, it's not even worth comparing to the hope that is to be revealed to us. So in conclusion, just a few, few practical application point if you notice here in romans chapter 8 so much of it is like think like this application right that's romans chapter 8 we just did a whole bunch of think like this application now we just go into practical application as we go in to facing future situations in this present age marked by sin and death question is do we consider do we know the hope of glory let me encourage you to consider it to consider it, to know the hope of future glory, the content of the hope of future glory. Let me encourage you to read about it. Read about it. Romans chapter 8. Memorize Romans chapter 8. So give yourselves to ro- memorizing Romans chapter 8. And if you work with another, another person who might be nearby, you know, get together every other week or every week to review exactly what it is that you are wrestling to believe and the things you ought to believe and hope in. It's God's, we know that God's word gives hope. Not only does it give life, it gives hope. So memorize it, read about it. If you want sermons, you know, listen to sermons on it. Think about heaven, think about glorification over and over and over again. And so that way, in, when you face present sufferings, you will know future hope, the age to come. If you want books to read about heaven, I can give you some of those. I'll give you titles about that. So read also 1 Corinthians 15, meditate on that where it talks about the, the mortal putting on immortality 
as the second Adam did what the first Adam could not. And because of the second Adam, that is Jesus Christ, because he rose from the dead, we therefore can look at death and say, where, O death, is your sting? Dwell on Revelation. The end there, where Revelation 21, where God dwells with us face to face and what that will look like and how we might experience that, where we will see him and he will be with us. We can sing about it as well. You know, if you, if you look at this uh, order of service, go ahead and look at there. Look at the order of service. This is not on accident. We don't just simply throw together certain songs here. You thought about the call to worship there, the light of life that comes in Jesus. And just think about the light of life coming into darkness, right? That's evil world, a bad world. The light comes through Christ. 10,000 reasons. You think about there, right? There's plenty of different reasons for why we ought to praise God's name, even in the midst of suffering. That's a good song to sing, good song to put on your playlist there. You have my hope is built. Is your hope built on relationships or your house or your health or your family? Of course not. We know that. We live in a fallen world. So what is our hope? Remind us word of God. Remind us spirit of God of what our hope is. Isaiah 65, a prophecy of the end times. A prophecy that actually we see is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, where the lion will lie down with the Lamb, where there will be a perfect world, a renewed world there. And we don't oftentimes know this, right? So we prayed a prayer of confession. And then we sang again that Christ is forever mine, forever ours, even though we sin, even though we look to the world and worldly treasures and forsake the King of Kings, even though we walk through darkness, even though we don't understand, we don't see any earthly good, but I have heaven And then we sang too, we are a pilgrim on this narrow way. Of course, our home should never be in this life. We have in Christ, through faith in him, keys to Zion's city. So we pray, Lord, help us rejoice. Put all of these songs on your playlist. We sang Jerusalem, my happy home. We want to put that into your heart there. What is it that we sing about? We sing about the final day, right? When are we going to come to you? This song reflects even the groanings of so-called childbirth that we experience here, even our very own bodies. We long for that day when we might see Jesus face to face. And then we're going to close on the last song, He Will Hold Me Fast. What is it, who is it, that preserves us in this, frankly, sometimes difficult, very difficult and painful life as we endure this present age? So read about it. Sing about it. And when you come to church, friends, too, don't come simply turning up here as if we're going to turn up to work. You come expecting the Word of God to form you. If you've come in here today without having prayed that the preacher would preach in the Spirit of God, being filled by the Spirit of God, and the Spirit would come upon us and teach us the very words of God and wake us up from lethargy, then you've come with with a heart that doesn't quite understand the corporate gathering where we hear the word of God preached and the spirit of God goes out forward to conform us to the very image of his son. That's a rebuke. That should be a rebuke to all of us. How many of you guys went to bed at 3 a.m. last night watching who knows what on YouTube in effort to really just tickle yourself when you know that here, here you have solace. Here you hear the word of God. It is here that we are reminded of the future hope of glory together as a people of God. Read about it. Sing about it. Prepare our own souls for it as we come to our corporate gathering on Sunday morning. So, once again, Christian, 
What is your future hope? Do you know the content of it? Because it is that future hope and glory when Jesus brings full salvation and final deliverance to his people as he gathers his people to himself where we will see him face to face. It's that content. That's the hope of future glory that outweighs all of your sufferings in this present age. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what a marvelous hope we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that sometimes our eyes are foggy, our vision is blurred. But Lord, we pray that we we thank you so much that we can go to the word of God in the power of the Spirit. And you teach us. You hold out this marvelous hope that we have of future glory. Lord, we pray that as we go into suffering in this world, whether it be the sufferings of our present age, the suffering of our breaking down world, the suffering of the fact that we are not, that we still fight against sin, the suffering of persecution on account of our faith. Lord, we pray that we would look at your faithfulness and steadfast love given freely to sinners in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that that would anchor us so much, so firmly in the fact that you, what you have promised, so, Lord, you will complete. We know, Lord, that in all of our sufferings, We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that we can be sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Your name we pray. Amen.